0: Design Matters will be back with a new season starting next week. In the meantime, we'd like to rerun an episode that originally came out in April of 2018.
1: Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side... For some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free. And ask yourself, what will you create today?
0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Simon Doonan about his unlikely career and his formula for creative window displays.
2: You know, try things that other people aren't doing, and they'll automatically have some kind of impact.
0: Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Simon Doonan is a true polymath. He's written seven books, including one that has been produced for TV by the BBC. He's been a guest star on America's Top Model. He used to impersonate Queen Elizabeth in public appearances. He has appeared more than once on The Moth. For decades, he designed the windows for Barneys where his title is Creative Ambassador at Large and he's here today to talk with me about his multifaceted career and how he manages to do so much so well. Simon Dunan, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Simon, you've said that you have no recollection of your 21st birthday or what you did last Christmas, but as long as you live, you will never forget how, when you were six years old, your mother sneezed Her dentures fell out of her mouth, hit the kitchen floor with a sharp clack, rattled sideways across the linoleum floor, while your mother, in her tight skirt and white stilettos, chased them down. Would you say this epitomizes your childhood?
2: In a way, it does. I mean, I think the point that I was trying to make when I wrote that anecdote was um, that, for me, I kind of remember the jarring things more clearly than i do the pleasant things like the day at the beach which was kind of perfect you don't really well i don't really remember it very clearly but when things go horribly wrong or when they're very jarring or dissonant or theatrical or melodramatic those are the things that i remember most clearly and that's not necessarily a nice thing you know that's just the way it works in my head she was in her 30s when she had all of
1: her teeth pulled to get her dentures. Why did she do that?
2: Um, well, back then, after the war, like post-war England, it, it was very sort of squalid and deprived. And it was uh, the 1950s after the war. was not an abundant time. I think a lot of the reparation money was going to Germany, to countries in Europe. And in England, we still had rationing and... My recollection is that most adults over the age of 25 had dentures. There were dentures everywhere, like soaking in glasses everywhere. Um, you know, we lived in a two-room flat with no kitchen and bathroom. My parents had cardboard in their shoes. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying I've seen things go from that kind of grim post-war thing. And I think that's why the 60s was such a sharp contrast. I was actually interviewing Paul Smith the other day. And I I said to him, why do you think the 60s had that look? You know, the Carnaby Street thing? Why did that happen? And he said, well, after the war, everybody was very threadbare. And um, so the mod kids, it was a way to rebel was to wear these very persnickety, tidy. If you look at those early pictures of David Bowie when he was a mod, it's just so neat, you know, because everything seems so threadbare and chaotic. You were born in what you've referred to as a grotty, gritty,
1: post-war industrial town called Reading, which is just outside of London, the same year that Queen Elizabeth II ascended the throne. Um, As you've mentioned, you lived on the top floor of a dilapidated rooming house in a two-room flat. And your father made furniture out of orange crates, I believe. But you've said that poverty is
2: vastly underrated. Why is that? My parents always looked upon that time when we lived in that little garret as they always said, oh, that was a really happy time. We were very happy then. You know, they both fought in the Second World War You know, they were happy just to have a packet of cigarettes and some boiled potatoes and um, just to be free at the end of the war. Because not having anything is sort of easier than wanting loads and loads of things. You know, um, there was something very elemental about that level of um, just not having a lot of stuff. You've stated that your mom kind of looked like
1: Betty Davis with the upswept rolled hair and the overpainted lips, and she always wore a long-line girdle, even though she was really skinny, and she smoked. And you've referred to her as a very film noir chick. Uh, Both your mother and father worked for the BBC. Your mom was a clerk in the news department, and your father monitored foreign broadcasts. And while your parents both worked... They placed you and your sister Sheila in an orphanage. And I believe it was a real Dickensian, Lord of the Flies type orphanage. Why did they do that?
2: Well, um, my dad was actually unemployed for the first three, four years of our childhood. He looked after us. He couldn't get a job because he hadn't been to college. He left school at 15, and he was trying to learn Latin. And my mum went out and worked every day. And she was like 10 years older than him, smart. It's pretty she, progressive, 10 years older than her husband. People didn't think about stuff. They met in a soup kitchen at the end of the war, and they got married two months later. I think it was like they both run away from home. So they you know it was a very sort of unconventional free kind of time but he didn't work and then somehow he talked his way into this job in the BBC where he was monitoring propaganda from Radio Moscow and um he sort of presented very well my dad even though he had left school at 15 16 so he got this job and um they had to figure out what to do about childcare. so there was this local orphanage where they dropped us off every day and um it was i'm laughing but it was very grim and my sister and i still talk about it how horrifying it was because these are like war orphans and Bridge kids with down and syndrome and and a lot of them were very angry kids and i'm sorry yeah but um You know, I think these things are very character building and you learn early on, you know, that life is hard. And um, my sister and I still talk about it and um, she still gets a bit teary. I guess being a guy, I don't react that way. But is that sexist? I didn't mean it to be. I didn't take it that way. (laughs) As you were growing up, you worried
1: that you were doomed to a life of deranged misery and imagined (laughs) that your future would be a grim montage of hallucinations, electric shock treatments, and nicotine. This was furthered when you failed the entry exam to get into grammar school. Why were you so worried about this, and what did you do after you failed the entry exam to grammar school?
2: As I got older, I started to see the circumstances around me were quite grim. You know, we eventually moved out of the two-room flat into a house with my grandmother. Narg. My grandmother, Narg, who'd had a lobotomy, (laughs) and my paranoid schizophrenic uncle. And I thought, oh, God, you know, is that all there is? What saved me, I think, was discovering fashion and style. And I think, you know, I looked at my mom and she would get up every day and we wouldn't see her for an hour or two. She'd get herself all done up. I have never saw her without makeup, hair done, outfit pulled together because she had this vanity that was a very life-affirming kind of vanity. It was like, okay, every day she had to go out, work a couple of jobs, come home, cook food for the lodgers. Um, She worked her ass off, but she always looked good and she always pulled her look together. And she could have become very downtrodden and depressed looking, but she didn't. She resisted it and she always um, fixed herself up. And that kind of vanity is a very life-affirming force. And um, I think about it. As you got older, you stated
1: that you were excessively focused on obtaining freedom, which comes with having a bit of extra cash in your pocket, and you were prepared to do whatever it took to get it. <laughs> at that time, you were washing dishes at the Mars Bar factory canteen, you were working at a local cork and bottle top factory. You thought at one point you might get a job at the Huntley and Palmer's Biscuit Factory, where you would work until you fell into some heavy machinery, went mad, or both. <laughs> um, what What were you thinking that you might want to do with your life at that point?
2: It was more about what didn't I want to do with my life. Like, um, I was becoming increasingly focused on the idea of style and celebrities and fashion and the 60s were happening and the Beatles and these people seemed to be having fun and looking good and it seemed to be the antithesis of what I was seeing in front of me which was the sort of fairly dismal post-war scenario and um, I did fail the 11 plus so that meant that when I went to secondary modern school, and then at the age of 16, we were all kicked out into the world. And that summer, my mother got me a job at the bottle-top factory, and I worked there for the summer, and I thought, you know, I ha- have to get my ass in gear. It was actually very motivating to me to be um, in these sort of dismal circumstances, and, and it mot- you know, I motivated myself. Well, you
1: could have gone the other way, Yeah, given, given think, what you were growing up with.
2: Well, being gay was like a big advantage, which sounds weird because back then, being gay was illegal. Like, homosexuality was only legalized in 1967. So it was like, oh, you were really a marginal person if you were gay. You know, my dad used to say to me, oh, you know, gay people, I get arrested, blackmailed, put in institutions... Like And I just thought, oh, yeah, but I'm one of them, blah, blah, blah. Did he know at that time? Probably, I'm guessing, but none of that was talked about. It it made me very self-motivating. So I thought, I have to get to college, and then I can, and then I can, and then I can. So I became very quite driven at a young age, and I went to Manchester University and um, purely bootstrapping it myself, you know, I couldn't understand why the other kids at the grammar school were not paying attention. How are you going to pass your A levels and go to college? You could be stuck in this town forever if you, you know, I was very goal oriented simply because of having sort of been to the bottle top factory. Before you got to
1: Manchester, you had a bit of an epiphany while crawling around the floor of your parents' bedroom in search of your missing cat. You happened upon the ver- what you referred to as the very meaning of life, or so you thought at the time. Can you tell us what you found?
2: Yes, I found a copy of Nova magazine. Actually, my mother subscribed to Nova magazine, and Nova magazine was a progressive, groovy, switched-on fashion magazine that had articles by Kenneth Tynan and Harold Pinter and great fashion editorials that were very sort of fashion forward and avant-garde. We're talking like um, 1967, 68. And so, you know, here was this other world that was half an hour away by train where these people were leading these glamorous, trendy, fabulous lives. So being trendy, to me, seemed like the antithesis of being dismal and locked up in a lunatic asylum or working in a bottle top factory. So I was looking for this alternative universe that was all pristine and courage and Saint Laurent and fun and glamorous. I thought those people are happy.
1: Well, you went to Manchester after that, but you studied psychology and art history. Why not fashion or something a bit more creative?
2: Um, it never occurred to me. Like back then, going to art college, which I considered was considered beneath going to university if you could get into university you went it was purely oh you know if you can get into manchester university go because it's good
1: after college you worked at a department store in a town called john lewis with a friend who looked like ziggy stardust was that james biddlecombe
2: well actually i went home after college and actually got a job in demolition because it paid more money. <laughs> and then I did that for a while. Wow. And it was just horrible. We were demolishing public toilets. It was one of the most gruesome jobs. Like with a jobs. sledgehammer? You yeah, were like pounding yeah. things and breaking things? And um, one day I remember thinking, this is just not moi. And I don't mind if I take a pay cut. I'm going to work in the local hokey little department store. And there was a John Lewis store in Reading. So I got a job at John Lewis in the department store. And my best friend who I'm still in touch with. He went on to become like a big drag performer in London, and then now he's a cabaret performer. And that is James, James Biddlecombe. Yeah, his name is James Biddlecombe. Everyone knew him as Biddy. He became quite well known in the 70s, 80s, and he still performs. He and I actually went to Butlins, which is um, an extraordinary experience that not many people seem to have had unless they're very working class. It was a... It was what working class people, if they were going on holiday, they would go to Butlins. There were these weird Butlins holiday camps. I mean, I guess the only equivalent thing would be those Borscht Belt places like the Neverly. Like um, they would have plastic parrots and plastic flowers hanging from the ceiling over the swimming pool. And I think that's where I got interested in display. It was extremely tacky, lowbrow, kitsch, not ironically... And that's where I think I got interested in display was going to Butlins with Biddy. Anyway, so flash forward, early 70s, we're both working in this department store. And we just basically got on the train and went to live in London and lived in a squalid bed sit, which is like a studio apartment minus any amenities. It's basically a room. And we just had a great time and... Back then, we didn't worry about our careers so much. We were worried about if we could get in this place or that place or who we knew or what clothes we could buy. And it was about having tremendous emphasis on exhibitionistic fun, like glam rock was the big thing back then. It was sort of after the hippie thing came the glam rock thing with Bowie and Mark Bolan and Roxy Music. And we were very into that, getting done up and going out and raging on the town so tremendous emphasis on social life and um, not thinking much about career. and then bit by bit I got interested in the window displays and I got to know the guys who changed the window and they introduced me to other people and that's how I got into window display so it was like oh being a salesperson is fine you don't have to anybody can do it really if you've got a interesting fashion. But the window display thing was a little more interesting. There was more to do. I liked being busy. So bit by bit, I began getting sucked into the wonderful world of window display. And is it
1: true that you started doing window dressing just by going into stores and asking who does your windows?
2: Well, my first window job was at Aquascutum, which was like Burberry. It was a heritage company, very sort of frumpy, conservative, And that's where aristocratic people bought their raincoats. The queen would wear Aquascutum twin set, sweater set and a tweed skirt when she was off walking the corgis in the heather. Um, So I worked at Aquascutum and, and it was interesting. I learned a lot, especially about men's display, putting suits on bus forms, carding shirts. There's a lot of technical stuff with men's display in particular and uh, I wasn't designing the windows you know that was I was like a a trimmer what was called a trimmer and so then after that I went to work at Turnbull and Asser which was a sort of a very heritage oriented company and I used to do the windows but I was also the shirt delivery person I used to deliver shirts to hotels for rich clients and um by then I started doing freelance jobs. So I would be walking down the street and I'd see a little boutique the way you would in Brooklyn or the East Village, you see a small shop and I would just go in and say, oh, who does your window? You know, I'll do it for five pounds or something like that. And so I built up this little repertoire of window freelance jobs in addition to my main income from um, Turnbull and Assa. And I had a couple of really great Freelance jobs. A lot of them were very lower level dress shops in shopping malls. And and then I had these two great ones. One was Tommy Nutter, who was the first trendy tailor on Savile Row. He's the one who designed Mick Jagger's wedding suit when Mick Jagger got married to Bianca, Bianca. Jagger. Yeah. She was wearing a white Saint Laurent suit with the big hat um the famous pictures of them online still people look at those pictures and say god they look the most great
1: glamorous
2: And of so all glamorous time. And tommy nutter made mix suit and all these rock stars and people used to come into tommy nutters and i would change the window there the other one was shirley russell who was the wife of ken russell and ken back then was an extremely important filmmaker influential filmmaker who made Women in Love, The Devils, The Boyfriend, you know, a great number of films. And they were all sumptuous and beautiful films with amazing costumes and incredible visuals. And a lot of that came from Shirley Russell, his wife. So she had this store on Portobello Road that would sell vintage clothes that they'd used in the films they would rent things it was a, it was a high end vintage shop called the last picture frock and i used to do their windows and that was really fun cuz the clientele were these super groovy rock chicks who would come in and buy a vintage poire dress and then from the Savile Row freelance job. I was in there one day and this guy came in and he said, Oh, did you do the window? And I said, Yes. And he said, It's really cool. It's so great. And he was American. And he said, It what the window was actually these tuxedos with stuffed rats, the trash cans, real stuffed rats with little wing collars and trash cans. (laughs) So it was like the idea of trash and rats, but with these super swanky tuxedos with these stuffed rats and little wing collars on like Downton Abbey on the rats and so he said that's a really twisted window you should come work for me and so I went home to Biddy, my roommate and I said, he was getting ready to go do his drag act and, he, and I said oh some guy offered me a job in LA and he said um, where's that and I said I don't know like and literally that gives you some window into how feral i was and how feral my roommate was we just vaguely knew because in those days if somebody flew to la they didn't come back you know if somebody flew to australia you didn't see them again it wasn't like now fly here fly there so it was a really long way away and and anyway i thought God, maybe I should go. And I just packed a bag and went to live in LA when I was 25 on my own with the promise of this job. And I got there and it was just a tiny little store with these two little windows. That was Maxfield.
1: And that was Maxfield. And was it Tommy Pierce who actually Tommy, came and found you at, at your yeah, store? Yeah, Tommy
2: Pierce is one of the most creative retailers in America. He's a real visionary. He was in LA, he had this little storefront near the troubadour. And he brought in the most interesting designer clothes. And he had this great clientele in this funny, quirky little shop. He's a real retail visionary who should be celebrated for that. He brought in the first person to bring in Japanese designers, Alaya, Armani. He brought all that stuff to the West Coast. And he had the most incredible clientele. Like, it was everybody from Cher, Cher right? to Fleetwood, know, Mac. Fleetwood Mac. Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood. I remember her coming in.
1: Now, you also had a T-shirt business at this point in your life, in which you now say had a huge role in all aspects of your personal growth.
2: My mother always had lots of jobs. You know, she two or three jobs. And then she'd have a Saturday job. On Saturday, she'd go and work at the local newspaper. And she'd sit by the phone writing down the soccer scores. They were all called in, you know, as they happened. So I was like that same mentality. Every day I had a different job. So myself and a friend, Jackie Terrell, well, she started this t-shirt business, and then I helped her with it. And then we did more, 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 and it grew um she went off to work with one of the people we were selling t-shirts to and then this other girl Beverly Klein who has a great clothing line in LA she and i carried on silk screening hand painting making dresses out of t-shirts we'd buy t-shirts in Chinatown and paint them and embellish them and we're talking early 80s so um yeah embellished t-shirts and i learned how to silk screen and hand paint and which inks to use and how to wholesale. And I always say I learned a lot of practical experience because, you know, we were so excited to get our first order from Judy's, you know, a chain store in L.A. And um, so we shipped it off, and then we were wondering, like, when are those people going to pay us? This isn't fair. And I finally plucked up the courage to call, and I said, you haven't paid us. And they said, are you the people that didn't send an invoice or any return address? (laughs) So you learn a lot of practical experience having a t-shirt business, how to make drying racks out of clothespins and elastic. You said that you don't know why people bother to
1: go to fancy colleges. Everything you need to know about life and more could be learned through the operation of a t-shirt business.
2: Yeah, that is 100% true. Like, I think of the practical stuff that I learned, how to get things done in the right order how to get things done quickly, anticipating problems, all the things that serve you really well in life. I learned having that t-shirt business. And I think it set me up well for my job at Barney's. Well, you stayed at Maxfield for eight years. What made you decide to move to New York City? Well, I would probably still be there. I stay at places a really long time. I'm kind of inert once I get comfortable. And I loved Maxfield. But a friend of mine said, let's go to New York and volunteer at the Costume Institute. Because every year, Diana Vreeland has these big Costume Institute shows at the Met. And I said, yeah, yeah, I've been to the exhibits, but. I never thought about working on them, but I'm not volunteering. Hello, I'm a professional display person. I would take a job. I'm not volunteering. Hello. So, and I should say at this point, it was the middle of the AIDS epidemic, just really getting going. And a lot of our friends were dying. And it was a really grim time that is hard to described to people who weren't there but it was horrible just imagine i lived in new york city during in manhattan yeah during so the all of a it sudden all your horrendous. friends are dying yes it's terrible yes. so we went to new york and i talked my way into a job at the costume institute with diana vreeland working on an exhibit called costumes of royal india in 1985 and for like four months Worked at the Met. She wasn't there a lot. She came into the um, watch what we were doing at the exhibit. She would make hilarious comments on the way the mannequins were being positioned. Like and what? Tell, I tell think us. She, give us one one little tidbit of Diana Well, I Freeland. remember she was um, looking at the. My job on costumes of Royal India was display designer. So I had to sort of figure out what mannequins were going where, which their arm positions would be, try and create vignettes and tableaus with these endless array of mannequins all wearing bejeweled saris, turbans. And Diana Vreeland would come whooshing into the room and she would say, they look like they're waiting in line at the (laughs) A&P something like that. And you think, oh God, is that a good thing or a bad thing? (laughs) And then she kept making all the painters repaint the walls of the exhibit And I remember they kept repainting the gift shop, which she wanted painted gray because all the rooms were painted these vibrant Indian colors, magenta, cobalt blue, blah, blah, blah. But the gift shop was going to be gray. And they couldn't get it right. And she'd go in and say, not that gray. I want the gray of Quakers. (laughs) And like, they'd be thinking, "Mm," because she didn't use Pantone chips. And she was a very inspirational figure. And, you know, you got to remember, this is a woman that, Irving Penn, Avedon, Brodovich, you know, Verushka, Twiggy. She discovered, made, created the the eye, the fashion vision, what things should look like in those Harper's Bazaar and Vogue when she was the editor there with incredible bravado and panache. And, um, you know, she was an unconventional person, an unconventional thinker who worked in a conventional place. You know, she was in the Met, in a museum. She was this very unconventional visionary. So that was a thrill to be around her. How did you get your job at Barney's? Well, at the opening party... Back then, they did have an opening gala back then, but it was a small dinner and it was socialites and people like Paloma Picasso or Pat Buckley, whoever the socialites were back then. We're talking mid 80s. And then there would be this disco afterwards on the Temple of Dendor that the hoi polloi could buy a ticket to. So you could, you know, I didn't go to the dinner and no, you know, just this very she she group of people went. But I thought, I'm going to splurge and spend $100 on a ticket for the after party, which people didn't call it that then. But I went with Suzanne Barch. I remember she was my date. And John Baden, who was a fantastic fashion personality, who um, created that line, Go Silk. And um, so they were my dates. And we had a great time. And John introduced me to Jean Pressman who was the one owner. of the owners of Barney's. Yeah. And he said, oh, I know your windows. You do those those sort of unconventional, crazy windows at Maxfield. Because that was my reputation, that I had done these rule-breaking, unconventional, punky, edgy. That was my thing. There was enough people doing conventional, glamorous, stylish windows. I wanted to do crazy Things that hadn't been done in window displays before. So that's how I got my job. And he said, Come work for me. And so I came in the beginning of 1986 and started working at Barney's. And it was an all consuming job. You know, the store was just about to expand, opening a big new women's store on 17th Street. It became my life. And I'm still involved 32 years later, however many years it is. And uh, it's been a very, very interesting growth experience for me. It was like a family experience. It was everything, really, because I was always involved in the windows. But over time, I got more responsibilities, advertising, publicity, store design. I worked on other areas in the company and always enjoyed it. Even when it was very challenging, it seemed very interesting. I was always learning. There was always something new. And I didn't have a safety net. You know, I had to make a living. I would say my main interests in life were being financially solvent. I'd put that at number one. And number two is being creatively stimulated. And so Barney's hit check both boxes. Barney's has always been a creatively fascinating, interesting company. I had like 20 minutes to kill before I came to meet you. And I just went in the store and walked around the handbag area. I just want to see what's new, look who's doing what colors. So it's been never not interesting to me. I'll never forget
1: my first experience of your window, Simon. It was the late 1980s and Barney's was in the flagship on 7th Avenue between 16th and 17th Street. I was living in a fourth floor tenement walk up on 16th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. And I would go to Barney's every Sunday to window shop and fantasize. I couldn't afford anything in the store. I was really into Isaac Mizrahi. And one of the most memorable experiences I had, and I I really have to tell you that I think that this was life changing for me, um, was when you did all the Christmas windows as the swanky bathrooms with the seven swans and filled bathtubs full of products and vanities full of makeup. I never considered that life could be that glamorous. <laughs> it changed my aesthetic immediately. And wow. I suddenly needed to have at least one or two beautiful things around me. And and it's always been that way ever since.
2: Well, I remember those windows vividly. And what I did was I had a friend in London who used to do these sort of Loose, sloppy paintings of Biedermeier patterns um, from like, I don't know, whenever that is, 19, early 19th century. And his name was Mick Hurd. And he painted all those backgrounds. And we made giant swans out of papier-mâché. I had never seen so much product before. I'd always loved the idea that Barney's was this high-end, glamorous store where you could buy Hermes or Gilsander or Prada. But the windows were going to be hokey, crafty a bit of Coney Island, a lot of papier-mâché, a lot of found objects, a lot of repurposed things. So it wasn't like, oh, well, this is a swanky, expensive store. The windows have to be swanky. If anything, I pushed them in the other direction, where the windows should be crafty, more like a sideshow in a carny, kind of hokey. But then there was this luxurious product and these... And And there was a
1: wit to everything that you've done. There's always been a sort of sense of... Cheek.
2: One of the things I learned from Diana Vreeland was that it wasn't really fashion unless there was an unconventional, unexpected component. So it wasn't enough that just you have a sleek, gorgeous girl in a sleek, gorgeous dress, in a sleek, gorgeous room with a sleek, gorgeous makeup and, and, and. It's much more interesting to take a girl in a sleek, gorgeous dress and put her in a building site or in a fruit market or the A&P you're in a, on a pile <laughs> of trash or, so, or in the A&P so in other words context that's to me what creativity is it's like just looking at things from different angles not doing what's expected trying to think what other people aren't doing. Like one of the things that Linda Fargo at Bergdorf's she always says to me, you know, you invented the messy window. And I think she's right, I did invent the messy window. Cause I used to look at windows, and think, God, it's kind of a pain in the ass that windows have to be so perfect. The floor has to be freshly painted, all the signage has to be straight, you're measuring with the spirit level. And I thought, what if it was a complete hellhole and a mess beyond anything? And I would do these windows not all the time, but occasionally where there was just this inordinate amount of detritus and cigarette butts and ripped up magazines and furniture crashing down and chaos, as opposed to what you would typically expect in a window, which is, you know, this pristine vibe. Um, So, yeah, to me, that's what I think creativity is looking for things that other people aren't doing looking at things in fresh ways taking things out of context it's almost formulaic if you're working in advertising or display or you know try things that other people aren't doing and they'll automatically have some kind of impact Your first book, Conventions of a Window Dresser,
1: came out in 1998 and jump-started your career as a writer. And you wrote columns for the New York Observer for 10 years, a column at Slate titled Getting It Right. And you've written six more books. You have a new book coming out in June. One of your books has been turned into a television show on BBC, yet you never thought or fantasized about being a writer. How did it first come about? You are such a good writer. I've been laughing out loud while reading your books over the last couple of weeks.
2: Yeah, it was very unexpected to me. Um, I put together all my imagery for this book, Confessions of a Window Dresser, and this Wonderful guy, Nicholas Calloway, who owns Calloway Publishing. Who did Madonna's sex book. Yes, Nicholas Calloway. He did Madonna's sex book. And um, he said, oh, you should write an introduction. And I wrote it and sent it in. And he said, oh, my God, you're hilarious. And write more, more, more. And it became text-driven. And then I sold the rights to Madonna and um, then I got my column from The Observer, as you said. And um, it was unexpected to me, but it was very fun, and le- like learning a new language or something like that. So I enjoyed it. It made me actually very appreciative of my retail work. Like, I lo- loved my job at Barney's. I appreciated it. You get out of the house, you work in collaboration with other people. Writing's very solitary. So it actually had a very generalizing positive effect on my life, you know, my involvement in writing. And it's good, you know, because like Beautiful People was originally called Nasty. And um, Simon and Schuster published it. And they said, this is going to be huge. It's going to be great. And I persuaded myself it was going to be a big book. And I thought, this is it. This is when I become the next Muriel Spark or David Sedaris or something. I was... Gonna, you know, I saw my name in lights and they published it and it was a complete flop. Like it was like a big dud, and the New York Times gave it a horrible review and said I was foppish and superficial. And of course, I wrote a column about that in The Observer talking about how great it is to be foppish and superficial. And I interviewed people like Boy George and Michael Musto. But it was disappointing and painful, and those are good experiences to go through if you want to be a writer. It's not all going to be plaudits. And then one day I got a phone call, and it was this guy, John Plowman, and he had produced Ab Fab, Little Britain, all these incredible, iconic British TV shows. And he said, oh, I want to make a TV show out of your book um, nasty, but we want to change the title to beautiful people. And that gave that book a whole other life. The reason that book didn't do well
1: was because of the cover, Simon.
2: Yeah, the I'm dentures. sure.
1: It did, I mean, the story is hysterical, but the image is not beautiful. And I think people got scared looking at it.
2: I know. What to me, I thought it was just funny, but I think it freaked people out. The other th- reason I think is because a lot of people take their lives and and put them out as a misery memoir, you know, look at the sadness I endured and the trauma and they lay it all out. And and I was sort of telling these gruesome stories with panache and humor and people couldn't relate to it. They didn't know whether to be sad or laugh or, you know, not everybody has my exaggerated kind of punk rock sensibility. So I'd written it as like, you know, a survivor humor book. Whereas if I'd written it as like, Finally, finally here I'm telling the story of my background and, you know, the really dark moments and package it that way. It might have been different. But, you know, it's good to go through those things. You have to learn to be resilient. I think resilience, persistence, they're the only thing that matters, really. If you're persistent, you can get stuff done. So um, I've never really had, like, those you know, Malcolm Gladwell years on the bestseller list or anything like that. But I've always enjoyed writing. You know, I just finished this book on footballers, English soccer players, European soccer players. Tell us the name. Well, in England, it's called Saturday Night Fever Pitch, which is a reference to Nick Hornby's classic book on soccer, Fever Pitch. And in America, it's called Soccer Style, the Madness and Magic. And it's a celebration of the culture around soccer globally. What happens when a 22-year-old guy is making $650,000 a week, you know, and is buying Lamborghinis and having fun and being crazy and under the kind of pressure that a sports person is in i'm fascinated by that it's a very visual book lots of tattoos haircuts cars so it's sort of um something i've been working on for four or five years it comes out in time for the world cup june 12th
1: very exciting june 12th we can everybody listening can pre-order it right now
2: yes soccer style the madness and magic
1: absolutely i have a few more questions for you You've been in this business for 40 years now, and it's a business that's highly fickle, very promiscuous. And when asked about it, you said that the key to your success is that you've always approached everything with an immense sense of gratitude. I really love that. How do you maintain that?
2: I am grateful to anybody who's ever paid me. (laughs) You know, like I had this job before I moved to America working for this couple called Shelley and Tony. And they had these fashion stores in shopping malls around the south of England. And they were just dress shops, high street dress shops. And they were so sweet. And I would go and I'd change the windows and, you know, um, they'd pay me. And um, it was decent money. And I managed to save some of it before I came to America. And, you know, I'm just hugely grateful to anybody who's been willing to pay me. Even when I really didn't have a huge amount to offer, you know, I found people were very benevolent and willing to take me on even when I didn't have proven skills or someone like Tommy Purse taking me on for that job. He didn't really know me. He just threw out that offer and I accepted it. Same with Gene Pressman, you know, offering me that incredible job at Barney's. You know, I'm eternally grateful for that because I was quite feral. I didn't know very much. I wasn't bringing a lot to the table. They were taking a leap of faith. So I've been hugely grateful to be taken seriously, given a job. Andy Warhol said, actually Andy Warhol didn't say it, but he quoted it constantly. Um, Success is a job in New York City.
1: That works for me. Yes, hello. Exactly. doesn't
2: matter if you're working in a juice bar or in Starbucks or in a magazine or whatever you're doing. You've got a foothold somewhere, somehow. Simon,
1: I'm so grateful that you came on the show today. I have been a fan of yours for over 30 years. And it is just such an extraordinary experience to be able to have this conversation with you.
2: Well, thank you, darling. I have one more thing to add. Please. As if I haven't done enough self-promotion about my football book, soccer book, sorry, I filmed this incredible NBC TV show, which is going to air beginning July 31st on NBC, and it's called Making It. And I am a judge along with Dana Isom Johnson, and the hosts are drumroll. 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 Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman oh my God. are the hosts, and it's a show about crafting. It's about put down your phone, make something gorgeous, you know, an incredible competition show with a whole new format. Making it Maybe. NBC. You're going to love it. Of course we are. Of course we are. Well, you can find out everything that Simon Doonan
1: is up to, what he's written about, what TV shows he's on, by going to his website, SimonDunan.com. His book, Soccer Style, The Magic and Madness, is coming from Chronicle June 12th. And his brand new show, Making It, is coming on NBC in July. Thank you for being on Design Matters today, Simon.
2: Oh my God, thank you for having me. I hope it wasn't too dismal.
1: Oh, it was divine, divine. (laughs) This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com.